Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Hi, if I haven't met you, my name is Brendan, and as you can tell, I have many gifts and abilities, but dancing, oh, dancing is not one of them. And so when it came time to one of the most important dances of my entire life, I had one goal, do not embarrass myself. (laughs) And this dance was for JC and I in our first dance, and you can see a picture of it there. But this beautiful picture did not just happen. In fact, JC and I spent four or five weeks of dance classes leading up to our first dance so that we could have it choreographed and make it look beautiful. Because like I said, I'm not a good dancer, but I'm good at following instructions. If so, I'm going to lay it out, I can probably follow those instructions. And so when it came time for our first dance, we nailed it. It looked beautiful. JC was a princess. We had all these spins and dips. And I remember partway through looking over at my groomsmen over here. And their mouths were just on the floor. Because they all knew how bad of a dancer I was. And they're like, how on earth did he do that? And in that moment, I was filled with this... Oh, that was a little bit too, too quick. But I was filled with this sense of optimism. And I quickly went from that beautiful dance to this wonderful picture as we're going to put back up on the screen and i would like to call that the freak out (laughs) because that was my internal reality of that moment and see i had this false sense of optimism that i actually was not that bad of a dancer (laughs) the problem was though i learned only one dance. And that dance involved a partner. So as soon as you took away that partner, this is what you got. (laughs) And I don't know if you can relate to me, maybe not with the dancing specifically. (laughs) But when you look out and you see all these other people who seem to have a sense of rhythm in their life, a sense of joy, uh, and they seem to be operating in the way that they should be, And yet you look at yourself, you feel isolated, you feel alone, you recognize that you're not in the right rhythm, you're not operating the way that you wish you would. And so what do you do? You put out this false sense of optimism to try and show I actually am not that bad. And you think if I could just look into myself, dig deep enough, I can find this sense of identity, meaning, and purpose. 20th century English uh, Christian mystic, Everleen Underhill, I think, defines this so well. She says, we mostly spend our lives conjuncting three verbs, to want, to have, and to do, craving, clutching, and fussing on material, political, social, emotional, intellectual, even on the religious plane. We are kept in perpetual unrest forgetting that none of these verbs have any ultimate significance except so far as they're transcended by and included in the fundamental verb to be. And that being, not wanting, 
having, and doing is the essence of the spiritual life. That so often we look to define our identity by what we have, what we want, or what we do. That we, we look at the outside world to define who we are. And, you know, maybe I can find this identity if I can just, you know, look to the right relationships. If I could just gain the right set of knowledge. If I could find the right romantic partner. And we look to all these things to try and define who we are. And yet, as Underhill points to, and I think scripture points to, is that our relationship to the world outside of us is not a place that defines our identity. Rather, it's a place in which we live out our God-given identity. And I believe that we can trace this question even further. That the question of identity, who am I? Uh, Timothy Keller, who is a preacher in New York and a cultural critic, he says this is one of the most fundamental questions that people are asking in this age. And I believe to answer this question, it actually t means we need to take a step further back. Instead of asking, who am I? We need to ask the question, who is God? Because the way that you answer that question will fundamentally change how you view yourself, the world, and how we relate in that world. And as soon as we start asking that question, we come to a very interesting belief held by the Christian faith, and that is the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one, yet three persons in one. And it's the reality when we understand who God is that reshapes who we are. And this is our big idea for today, is that who God is forms who we are and what we do. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into the fun topic this morning of the identity of God as Trinity. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we want to come before your word, and just pray that you would open it up, and that Holy Spirit, that you would soften our heart, and that Jesus, that you would be revealed to us, and that we would find our identity reshaped in you. Praise you, we thank you in your name. Amen. And so, if you are new to the faith, uh, welcome here. And you're probably wondering, what on earth is the Trinity? And in fact, if you were to ask many Christians this question, they would probably give you a little bit of a similar answer. You might get a few confused faces, and they'll try and explain it, give you some weird illustration about a three leaf clover and a science experiment about the three forms of water. And then they would finally conclude with being, I don't know. It's a mystery. Nobody can fully understand who God is. And so I'm here today not to remove the mystery of the Trinity, but instead to actually show us that the mystery of the Trinity is not something to be ignored. Rather, it's something that we are invited into. That we are invited into the very life of God. And it's at this point we come with our first issue, and that's with the very word itself, Trinity. If you were to search through the entire Bible, that word will never come up. In fact, the doctrine of the Trinity did not take its full form until 
the uh, kind of the fourth uh, fourth century, with the Nicene Constantinople creeds, and so that begs the question: Is the Trinity even biblical? And I would like to say that though the word Trinity is not in the Bible, it's revealed throughout all of Scripture. N.T. Wright has this uh, really helpful analogy that I think helps us grasp this. And he says that the word Trinity itself is like a suitcase. And what, what we see is that what you put in the suitcase is the clothes, and the clothes are Scripture. And so the idea of the revealing of the nature of God is found throughout all of Scripture. But when you travel, what you want to bring is your clothes. Yet you can't bring all your clothes all at once everywhere you go. You need to put it in the suitcase so that you can easily carry it and understand where you're taking it. But there will come a point when you will arrive at a destination and you'll need to open up that suitcase. You'll need to take out the clothes, you'll need to examine them. Or if you travel how I do, the suitcase opens and the clothes explode all over the room so you can see it all at once. And so this morning, we're going to open up the suitcase of the Trinity, and we're going to examine what Scripture has to say about the nature of God. And so this will be a bit of a kind of teaching intellectual exercise, but it ultimately is going to be important to understand that fundamental question of who we are. And so to start this journey, I don't want to start with some sort of philosophy about trying to fit the three in one, but actually walk through how does the Bible as a narrative story talk about the Trinity? And so in the beginning, in the Old Testament, you have the nation of Israel. And fundamental to the idea of the nation of Israel was that they believed in one God. All the other nations, they believed in many different gods, but Israel they believed in the one God who they thought ruled over the entire world. And this is actually one of the most fundamental verses for Israel is found in Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, which is called the Shema. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Then, in fact, in the Ten Commandments, they say you should have no other gods before the one God of Israel. Worship is reserved only for this one God. And yet, we come to the New Testament, and we encounter the person of Jesus. And for these New Testament writers who wrote the, the New Testament, they were good monotheistic Jews. And yet, they encounter Jesus, and he rearranges categories for them. That Jesus comes on the scene, and what he starts to do is he starts to do only the things that God of Israel would do. He takes on the titles of God as good shepherd. He has control over nature. And one of the most craziest things for a Jew was that he actually claimed to forgive sins. That in fact, in Mark 2 uh, verses 7, the Pharisees see him forgive sins, and they say this, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus slowly begin to reveal his identity. The, the disciples say, show us the Father. And Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. See, Jesus was trying to make the point 
not just that he was a God that could be added to the pantheon of other gods. Rather, he was the God of Israel. And it's like when you get to that, uh, those movies with that huge plot twist. Has anyone seen the movie Arrival or Tenet or any Christopher Nolan film? But it's, it's when you get to the point of the climax and it becomes such a paradigm-shifting moment in the movie that the entire movie that you've just watched now becomes reshaped in light of this climactic moment. This is what happened to the New Testament writers. And we see this really messed up, the Apostle Paul. He had spent his life persecuting Christians. And then he has an encounter with the risen Jesus. And he spends 10 years after that. He just disappears to go figure this out. How do I figure out the, na the nature of who God is? And in fact, my whole life growing up as this monotheistic Jew. And Paul has to work this through. But when he comes back, this is something he says in a letter to the church in Corinth. He says, yet for us, there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist. One Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. Paul puts Jesus in the middle of the formula of the Shema. You see, you can't talk about God without talking about Jesus. You can't talk about Jesus without talking about God. Or we see in the words of the Apostle John in John 1, 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything that was made. That Jesus was the word. That Jesus, that God created the world through his word. And now all of a sudden, they're reinterpreting this in light of Jesus. Jesus was distinct from God, and yet he was fully God. Then we see in the words of Jesus when he talks to his disciples. He says, I'm going to ascend to the Father, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And in the Old Testament, where there was this idea of the temple. And the temple was with the people. And the very presence of God dwelled in the temple. So the idea that God was physically in the temple, but was beyond the temple. And now what happens? It gets reinterpreted in light of Jesus, in light of the Holy Spirit. Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians, uh, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Later, he says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own? That we have now become the temple of God, where the presence of God dwells within us. And we see that the Holy Spirit is also God. The Holy Spirit shares in the divine attributes of God. Hebrews says he's eternal. The Holy Spirit was not created, but creates. And again, Paul puts him in these great texts talking about the oneness of God. In 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6, he says, Now there's a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. The variety of services, but the same Lord. And there's a variety of activities, but is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. We also learn that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. 
but is a person. The Holy Spirit teaches, bears witness, forbids, doesn't allow certain activities, speaks, evaluates, provides wise counsel, is grieved, has emotion. And so going back to the suitcase analogy, at this point, the suitcase of the Trinity has been opened. Clothes have been spread everywhere. We've ex evaluated some of the scripture. And this is the point of the trip where my wife, JC, would come in and say, Brendan, if you're not keeping your clothes in the suitcase, at least put them into nice, tidy piles so we can deal with them. <laughs> and so that's what I'd like to do is to try and take the scripture that we've spread out as to put in a way that we can kind of grasp and get our minds around. And so what we see is that God is three persons. That the Father is distinct from the Son and the Spirit. The, Spirit, uh, the Son is distinct from the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit is distinct from the Son and the Father. That there is three persons. It's not three members of the Trinity. The Trinity is not a club. But it's three persons of the Trinity. And in the baptism of Jesus, we see all three persons in display. Where we see God the Father looking on in his son, being baptized with approval, saying, this is my son with whom well pleased, and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove on Jesus. Second, we see each person is fully God. The Father is God. I put some of these scripture verses there. We're not going to have time to walk through all of it, but just as a point of reference. So the Father is God. Jesus is God, as we've seen in John 1, 1 to 4, Colossians 2, 9. In the words of the creeds, he is the very God of very God. And the Holy Spirit is God as well. And thirdly, we see there is one God. There's many texts talking to the oneness of God. The New Testament writers never deny this fact. They never worship three gods. It's always one God. And so I want to help us further clarify and understand this. And to do that... We're actually going to take some look at uh, heresy. And at this point, you're probably thinking, I don't know what is more controversial, that he's about to talk about heresy or that he was talking about dancing. <laughs> but it's also helpful to understand what God is not. So the first heresy is the idea of modalism, which says that God is one, and he appears in three different modes. So in the Old Testament, he was the mode of the Father, in the New Testament, the mode of Jesus, and now in the mode of the Holy Spirit. But this denies the three persons of the Trinity, and it does not do well to deal with, as we talked about, the baptism of Jesus. The second thing which God is not, is that it's, we're not saying that only the Father is divine, not the Son or the Holy Spirit. So this is a popular belief held by uh, Jehovah's Witnesses that says that Jesus is created, and the Holy Spirit is created, and they're not divine with the Father. That all three persons of the Trinity are divine. And the third one is called tritheism, or as I like to call it, the Transformers heresy. And if you've seen the movie The Transformers, you have three different Transformers. They all come together to form one really big Transformer. And this is the heresy that you know, God is really three different gods that come together to form this one large God. But it denies the oneness of God. And so it's at this point we'd like to reach 
towards some sort of analogy to help our mind grasp this. But the problem is, all the different analogies that we talk about, though they are helpful in some ways, usually end up falling into one of these three forms of heresy. The idea of three-leaf clover is just the same as tritheism. Or sometimes there's the analogy of God as water, the same substance, but in three different forms, solid, liquid, and gas. But again, that's modalism. The best analogy that I came across was by C.S. Lewis, and his analogy was why our analogies don't work. <laughs> and he says, if you could picture this, that we live in a two-dimensional world. And we're trying our best to describe a three-dimensional object. But it's beyond our point of reference. And so we can have some grasp of it. And so as I mentioned, there's this mysterious nature of the Trinity that is not fully understood in all ways for us, but in a way that we can still grasp and understand to some extent. So thank you for walking through this academic process. But what I want us to realize is that these, this is not just some dead doctrinal propositions. This is, in fact, the scripture revealing the living God to us. Because who God is forms who we are and what we do. And in the words of New Testament scholar Michael Gorman, he says, God does as God is. That the very actions of God flow out of him being triune. And I want us to examine some of the implications of God being revealed in this way. And the first is with the idea of love. That this idea of God as Trinity separates him from all other gods. When it comes to other monotheistic religions that claim that there's one God, they can say that God is loving. And that's fine. But love is a relational quality. It requires another. And so God needed to create the world in order to display his love. His love is still in some ways dependent upon the world. But when we come to the doctrine of the Trinity, in John 1, uh, 4 to 8, it says not that God is loving, but God is love. That it's in his very essence and being. That Jesus says, before the foundations of the world, the Father loved me. That before the world was created, that God was a community of love in the Godhead. And it's from his nature as this loving God that he creates the world. And then we see all three persons at work in creation. That the Father creates through his word, the Son. And we see that the Holy Spirit is the animating spirit of life into creation. We also see this in the work of redemption or when God rescues us. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. That it's this act of love from the Father through the Son. And that as we become new creations in Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, the very presence of God within us, that seals us for the day of redemption. What we also come to realize is that God is personal. God is not an impersonal, abstract force, 
but we see through the persons of Trinity, God is deeply personal. And this is why I said so important our beliefs about God shape how we relate and understand God. And so when you look at um, one of the things that, you know, few years ago throughout culture that we talk about in Christian culture is the idea of what would Jesus do? It was put around our wrists on bands, and that was the question. What would Jesus do in this situation? And what we see is the goal with that, there's very good intentions with that, and not all of it is bad. But what happens here is that the goal becomes about doing what Jesus did. And what happens is, Jesus becomes an abstract moral philosophy in which we try to live our lives. And we fail to recognize the deeply personal nature of Jesus. And in fact, John 14, 20, Jesus says, you know, in in the day you will know that I am in the Father and you are in me and I in you. The goal of the Christian life in light of Jesus is union with God. And in John, there's chapter 14 to 17, which is one of the most explosive sections of the Bible on the Trinity, where Jesus talks about how we are to abide in him. And when we abide in him, then it is that we bear fruit and we live this life in light of who Jesus is. The goal of the Christian life is actually union with God, that we are invited into the very mystery of the Trinity that Jesus says, says, I am in the Father, I am in you. We are brought into the life of God. And now when I talk about us being brought into the life of God, it's not that we become connected with some sort of divine force like nirvana and lose who we are. But it's when we find union with God that we actually become a transformed version of ourselves. Bringing back my lovely dancing illustration that when we view God as an impersonal force or we view God as an abstract moral philosophy, our lives are like me dancing alone by myself. You look out at the world and you recognize I am not dancing how I should. And God is probably like my wife in that moment, looking on in shame and disgust, hoping that I can figure this out one day. But instead, when we grasp that personal nature of the triune God, the life the dance through life becomes different. God is not abstract out there, but he actually invites us into relationship with himself. That as we begin to move and and in some ways dance with him, that he begins to transform us and renew us and we become something different, a transformed version of ourselves in relation to God. And we begin to display love and beauty to the world. Who God is forms who we are and what we do. And we are to live and operate out of this identity. And so to kind of begin to land the plane and to bring this to bear on our, our lives and our identity, I want us to I want to take some time to first examine our identity in God as seen in baptism, but also to do it through the lens of my experience being a part of Crosspoint. 
So when I first joined Crosspoint a year and a half ago, one thing I noticed is that with Crosspoint, we conclude every gathering the same way, with the same liturgy. And in fact, it's going to go up on the screen, and I'm just going to encourage you to say it with me. You are the people of God, called by God, into his redemptive mission in the world. So be who you are. This has become a statement that has become defining for our community. And when I first heard it, I thought, wow, that sounds really nice. I've got a really good sense of theology, understanding. But what I came to realize, that this wasn't just some disembodied phrase, but it actually would contribute towards the identity of this community. And so let's talk about our Trinitarian identity. That when we go into baptism, as we're going to talk about the Great Commission, we are baptized into a new identity in light of who God is. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus charges his disciples to go out. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so we are baptized in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean? First, we are baptized in the name of the Father, which means that we are family. And that we see that God is presented as Father and that when we become in relationship with him, it says we are adopted as sons and daughters into this new family, this spiritual family. The church is not a service that we do. The church is the people of God, this new family, in light of the Trinity, which has unity, diversity. And we see in the Trinity, each person plays different roles. And we're all to play different roles as part of one body. And yet, this was something I've seen on display in this community. Over this time, I've been part of a small group. And it's been interesting being part of this small group in light of such a crazy time. Because in this small group, we've had such powerful and helpful discussions. We don't always agree all the time, but there's this bond of unity and love as we try and grow together as a spiritual family. I've seen this in the way that people in this community have opened up their homes. I've been helping facilitate young adults ministry and people like the Winklers or the Foles, they said, here, our home is open, take it, it's yours. And there's a sense of family inviting others in. God is Father, we are his family. Second, we see we are baptized in the name of the Son, in the name of Jesus, and Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the King of all. But Jesus came not necessarily to say that you have to serve me, but he came to serve. And that that was the posture of Jesus as Lord, that he came to serve us, and we get to experience that, which makes us his servants, that we serve in light of what we've received from God. This is who we are, and this is something I actually got to experience. When I first joined Crosspoint, uh, I had barely been a part of Crosspoint, maybe a month or two. 
and it was around the time of Easter. And to make a long story short, I had to have emergency surgery. I was spent Easter weekend in the hospital, and then I had to spend a whole month after on bed rest. But the day I got home from the hospital, Rebecca Nay heard about that, and she brought food to our house, three or four meals for JC and I. I thought, wow, what type of community is this? And I remember talking to other people about that, sharing this beautiful story, and many people said a similar thing. I said, oh yeah, that's who we are. And it's become embodied in this community. Thirdly, we see that we are sent. That we are baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit. And so in John 20, 21, uh, we see that uh, Jesus saying, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And he breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit. That we worship a missionary God, which makes us a missionary people. That, as we talked about, we actually get to join in God in his redemptive mission in the world. So when it comes to things like this, Kids Capers or Eden Ministries, these are not just things we tack on or things that we do. It flows out of who we are as the people of God. That we are sent and a missionary people. And so I say these things. Not to try and color Crosspoint in rose-colored glasses. Or to say that we are a perfect church community. That we have it all together, living this out at, all at once. But I say this to illustrate that as we understand who God is, that forms and informs who we are. And it comes out in the liturgies that we say. But that also becomes part of the community that we are. The idea is that doctrines or beliefs that we hold, liturgies or things that we say, are not empty phrases, but they actually become embodied in our community. And these realities get to be lived out with who we are. And I know as a church we're going through this season of transition for looking for a new lead pastor, but one thing that's remained the same is that who God is. And that deeply forms who we are. That we are formed in light of who God is. And that we are still the people of God, called by God, into his redemptive mission in the world. And I actually am excited over this next season to see what will this look like in our community as we live out this identity. And if you are here today, and maybe you don't call yourself a Christian. But maybe you relate with what we talked about before. You're longing for meaning, identity, and purpose. That you have this deep longing to be loved and to feel a sense of belonging. That I would encourage you to actually take time to wrestle with the question, who is God? Because that will reform, reshape your entire life. And that in fact, God is inviting you into life and relationship with him. That as you repent of your sin and your brokenness and you turn towards God, that you receive this new identity. You do not have to achieve it, but you receive it through grace and faith. That is a gift from God, and that you actually get to become part of a transformed community, learning to live in light of who God is.
who God is forms who we are and what we do. Uh, Let me just pray as we conclude this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we are just in awe of who you are. That we recognize in your nature there's, there's mystery, but also love and an invitation. And so Jesus, we pray that we would step into that invitation to receive the identity that you've given us. For us to become a transformed people in light of who you are. Help us by your Holy Spirit to live in new ways. To see our heart and our motives be transformed. We love you. We praise you. We want to seek and we desire you. May you be glorified in your wonderful name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.